Good morning, Door Creek. Good to be together. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. And uh, we have just spent the last 10 months working through the Gospel of Luke. Now, I know some of you are going, man, that was a long series. So when we did the, the Gospel of Luke at College Church in Wheaton, it was two and a half years. So we've been flying. You didn't know it, but we've been flying. I'm serious, two and a half years. So we come to the end, and we come to the crucifixion today. That's why we've been singing about God's love being poured over us through Christ, his sacrifice on the cross. So let me just pray. Lord, as we come to your word, Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. There's just a lot of distractions right now. Some of us have been singing words, and we don't even know what we're singing. We've got these things on our mind, things on our heart. Would you center us? And as we hear from your word, may we be gripped again with your love and your mercy and grace. And would you give us courage to keep turning towards you for that, for all of life. In Christ's name we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. Attorney Marty Stroud III of Shreveport, Louisiana, was the lead prosecutor in December 1984, first-degree murder trial of a man, Glenn Ford, who was sentenced to death for the death of a Shreveport jeweler. Ford was released from prison March 11, 2014, after the state admitted new evidence proving Ford was not the killer. A year later, this past March 20th, 2015, Stroud wrote a brutally honest apology in the Shreveport Times. He writes, in 1984, I was 33 years old. I was arrogant, judgmental, narcissistic, and very full of myself. I was not as interested in justice as I was in winning. As Al Pacino said in his movie, winning for me was everything. After the death verdict in the Ford trial, I went out with the others and celebrated with a few rounds of drinks. That's sick. I'd been entrusted with the duty to seek the death of a fellow human being, a very solemn task that certainly did not warrant any celebration. In my rebuttal argument during the penalty phase of the trial, I mocked Mr. Ford, stating that this man wanted to stay alive so he could give the opportunity, be given the opportunity to prove his innocence. I continued by saying this should be an affront to each of you jurors, for he showed no remorse, only contempt for your verdict. How totally wrong I was. I speak only for me, no one else. I apologize to Glenn Ford for all the misery I've caused him and his family. I apologize to the family of Mr. Roseman for giving them the false hope of some closure. I apologize to the members of the jury for not having all of the story. I apologize to the court in not having been more diligent in my duty to ensure that proper disclosures of any evidence had been provided and all the evidence provided to the defense. Can you imagine being innocent on death row for 30 years? to be mocked at the trial for your ongoing stance of, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Can you imagine? 2,000 years ago, we find arrogant men pressing charges 
with absolutely no remorse. We come up to this powerful governor, Pilate, who is very weak, convicting an innocent man out of political expediency and self-preservation. And though innocent, Jesus did not mount a defense or call for an appeal. And as Luke comes to the end of his gospel written to his friend Theophilus, he focuses in on the crucifixion and he keeps making this point that Jesus is innocent. Because, I mean, if I were to tell you that the hope of the world is found in a man who was convicted of a capital offense and actually went to the death chamber. Maybe he sat in an electric chair. Maybe he was given that lethal injection. And I told you that man who died in that circumstance is the hope of the world. You go, that's a stretch. I don't know. And it's likely that this is one of the things that Theophilus is wrestling with. Remember, when Luke opens his gospel, he introduces us to this friend of his, Theophilus, who is acquainted with, he's likely a follower of Christ, but he's filled with questions and perhaps doubts. And so this is where he ends, with the crucifixion, the resurrection. As we get to chapter 23, he's going to reiterate four times from four unlikely places, none of them his disciples, that he indeed suffered innocently. So grab your Bible and let's get there. Luke chapter 23. And because Jesus, innocent Jesus, embraced the cross, dying for you and me in our place, those who turn to him like that thief on the cross find mercy and hope. And I'm hoping today is one of those days where you come to this realization that you need God's mercy and you need hope for all that is on your plate and in your life. So just look at the chapter. I don't know if you've got little headings and things. So verses 1 to 25, finish the trials. There's going to be three trials by the two governors, first Pilate, then Herod, back to Pilate. Then we get in verses 26 through 49, the account of his crucifixion with the three crosses, the two thieves on either side, Christ in the middle. And then we come to the burial He's going to make it very clear to Theophilus that Jesus really did die and that the women really knew where he was buried. They didn't get lost on Sunday morning and show up to some other tomb. All right? And then we'll just quickly look at some of the resurrection account in 24, verses 1 through 12. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teachings. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been waiting and wanting to see him. 
From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign, that is a miracle of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Three trials, two governors, one verdict that follow on the preceding three trials that had just gone on that night, Thursday night, early Friday morning before the religious leaders, Annas, Caiaphas, the priests, and then the whole Sanhedrin council made up of 70 of the elders, the ruling elders of the nation, the people of Israel. Three trials. The first is all through Pilate. And they had to go through Pilate. It's important to know that the religious leaders did not have the authority to condemn a person to death. They needed Rome's approval to do this. So they're heading to Pilate to get permission to have this man executed. So he was the governor from 80, 30, 26 to 36. And Luke 13 tells us he was a vicious man. Remember, Jesus talks about this. He talks about these Galilean Jews who were offering sacrifices and were killed in the, in the context, right, in the midst of offering sacrifices, their blood mixed in with the, the blood of the sacrifices, desecrating that holy place. This man had a record of harshness and pride and violence and greed and injustice. And he continued to execute people without trial. And he was unbearably cruel and just unbelievably insensitive to the Jews, to their religious practices. And he just came up with all the scandalous, idolatrous action that incensed the people. They hated him. And yet it was this man who three times in Luke 23, we're told, declares Jesus' innocence three times. And three times the religious leaders point out, or not three times, but they point out three points in their charges against him. He's subverting the nation. That is, he's inciting the people to rebel against Rome. He's a revolutionary, right? And he's going to cause you trouble. You need to put this down. They said he opposes Caesar. He, he, he's not going to pay taxes. Actually, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, to God what is God. None of these charges were true. Uh, maybe we could say he claims to be Messiah. He certainly didn't deny it that Thursday night. Claims to be Messiah, a king. Yet verse 4, Pilate's clear. I find no basis for a charge against this man. But he knows these religious leaders are not going to take that for a quick and easy answer. Oh, Rats, we were hoping, maybe. No, no. They will be unrelenting in their mission to get rid of Jesus. And he senses that. And we know from the other gospel accounts, they're going to bring up things like, hey, look, if you let this guy go, you're no friend of Caesar's. And so they're putting him between a rock and a hard place. And the text is very clear. He wants to release him. But he knows he's in a hard spot with these religious leaders. And, and so he hears, he's going, oh my goodness, he's from Galilee. This could be my out. Because technically, you know, I don't have jurisdiction over a guy from Galilee. And so he says, hey, Herod's in town. Send him to Herod. So his soldiers bring him over to Herod. Now Herod, 
There's a couple of Herods in Luke's account. There's the Herod at the beginning of the gospel, right? When his father, Herod the Great, is trying to hunt down this newborn king. Matthew tells us about the Magi, right? They go to Herod and he hears about it and he says, hey guys, when you find him, tell me so I can go worship him too, i.e. I'm gonna get rid of that baby. When they don't come back, Herod the Great Antipas' father, this Herod's father, goes out and kills those baby boys in Bethlehem under two, right? Now this is Herod though, who kills Jesus' first cousin. Who's Jesus' first cousin? John the Baptist. He has him beheaded. John the Baptist is the guy who's saying, Herod, what you've done is wrong. You've taken your brother Philip's wife and you seduced her and made her your wife. That is wrong. So Jesus has every reason to have some major strong feelings like anger towards this man. But this is the interesting thing. There is no other place in the accounts of Jesus being tried where he doesn't say a word except here except here. And maybe it's this very thing that incensed Herod. I mean, maybe, maybe he just thought he was pathetic, but maybe I'm thinking, hey, do you, you know, I've got some authority and power here and you're not answering my questions. But we, what we do know is he, he was looking for a miracle. He, he treated Jesus not as a king, but as a curiosity. It was kind of like, hey, the circus act is coming to my place. I can't wait for him to do something crazy. That's what he was looking for, Jesus to do something miraculous. But all we know is he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything like Isaiah prophesied 800 years before as he accounts the sufferings of this coming Messiah. Verse seven, you see it on the slide. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So back to Pilate, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Hoping, you know, okay, at least he gets flogged. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas, the one they had asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. We know from the other accounts that Pilate's practice was at the Feast of Passover, kind of a gesture of goodwill, he would offer up a choice of two prisoners. Which one do you want 
released. So he's going, hey, all right, it didn't work handing him off, punting, and, and sending him over to Herod. Maybe this will work. And, and Barabbas was a bad man. He was a murderer. And in his mind, he's going, well, this is be easy. I mean, Jesus is basically a teacher, a rabbi, a rabbi. A mur- you know, obviously the crowd's all going to know, release the rabbi. But the other gospels tell us that the religious leaders who are bent on Jesus' destruction incite the crowd. Hey, pick, Ra- pick Barabbas. And so they just go crazy. Now, this is the crowd. Remember, five days before, as Jesus is coming off of the hill in Bethany in and down to Jerusalem, they're the ones laying down their palm branches. They're the ones taking off their garments and paving the road for this one they recognize as king. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means save us now. These are the ones who just five days ago want to crown him king. And now they're crying for his blood, crucify him. And they delight when Pilate's soldiers push that crown of thorns in his head. They, They love it. They love it. We know from Matthew's account that while this was going on, his wife sends a message that says, look, I've had an awful dream about this man. Don't have anything to do with him. He is doing everything he can, but as he's caught between a rock and a hard place, he does the unthinkable and he saves himself at the expense of sending an innocent man to the cross. Three trials, two governors, one repeated verdict. They both say it, not guilty, not guilty. So when that happens at a trial, what happens to the accused? You go free. What an irony that the one who was found not guilty actually receives the death sentence. What an irony that the one who was freed actually was guilty of one of those trumped up charges of Jesus. He was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary who actually had murdered people right there in that city. Barabbas goes free because Jesus goes to the cross. Don't miss that. Barabbas's Freedom, his second choice, his second chance is given him because Jesus goes to the cross. So we have two unlikely witnesses that Luke presents to his friend Theophilus. Look, everybody said he was innocent. Pilate, Herod. There's a couple more, the thief on the cross and the centurion. Verse 26 As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya. So this is an African man who likely was in Jerusalem. Remember, it's the feast. The pilgrims would come back to be there for that holy celebration. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, the crossbar, which is what the thieves would carry to the place of execution and made him carry it behind Jesus. 
A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, women, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, these women, Fall on us in the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You think it's bad now? To use the, the metaphor of the tree, the tree's still green. You don't cut down green trees. It's not time for judgment yet. What is it going to be like if this happens when the tree's green and it's not ready? Israel's not ready for judgment. He's speaking of what he spoke about in chapter 21, the destruction, remember, of Jerusalem and the temple. Two other men, verse 32, both criminals were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, called that because it looked like a skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, do not miss this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice about him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we know that Jesus was flogged. Flogging would have meant 40 lashes minus one. The belief was 40 lashes is too much. A person can't endure such physical trauma. 39 lashes by this whip with the leather uh, thongs there that had all kinds of sharp objects tied into the ends. Sometimes they were rocks. Sometimes they were pieces of sharp bone or even metal. And, and they would just tear open a person's back. And so remember, he's been up all night, right? He's had this vicious beating, and he is required to carry the cross beam of his cross. And he can't, he can't hold it up. So he stumbles and falls, and it's not like this polite moment where the Roman soldier says, sir, would you mind? It's like, grab him. You carry the cross. So here's this man from... Cyrene from northern Africa behind Jesus who's behind the placard that says king of the Jews which the placard was all about why is this man dying why is this man dying that by the way that placard bugged the religious leaders it's not in Luke's account but the other account says that they said no 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 don't say he's the king of the Jews no say he says he's he says enough with you guys it is what it is so Simon is used by God to get Jesus to the place where he would die. 
for you and me. And on the way, he talks to the women. And on the cross, he speaks to the Father. And I think it's these words in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, that had a profound impact on that thief. Because the other accounts tell us that both thieves were hurling insults at Jesus. Something's happening with the thief who now has remorse and is turning to Jesus for mercy. I believe it's this unbelievable compassion and grace and mercy where he would say, Father, forgive them. Can you imagine? So don't, don't, don't airbrush what's going on. Jesus is hanging naked on a cross. He's not that far off from eye level. We sometimes have the cross like 20 feet up. No, he's probably just a few feet off the ground. People are coming up to him. They're spitting at him. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. Hey, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself and us. Come on. You saved others. Save yourself. Why don't you call down the angels from heaven? All of which he could have easily done. You're innocent. You're being mocked. And then we haven't talked about the physical suffering. You die by asphyxiation. The nails go very likely right through here. No blood coming from that, so it takes longer to die. Your feet, one over the other, a nail through that, and you're, you're like this. So to breathe, you gotta push up. That's why they would break the legs to hasten the death process. They didn't have to do that because Jesus dies before that. And in the midst of all that he'd gone through, innocent, I mean, we can't even believe that because we haven't been like innocent for a day, right? He's been innocent of all charges. He's perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has perfectly loved his neighbor, including right now his enemies. Can you imagine praying to God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, how true it was that they didn't know what they were doing. But to pray, forgive them. That transformed, I believe, the thief on the cross and the centurion. Because let me tell you, that centurion, this wasn't his first rodeo. And he'd heard it all from men on the cross. The vile things coming out of their mouths. The curses coming out of their mouths. He had never heard anybody say, God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so the thief makes the same point that Luke wants, wants us not to miss. He's done nothing wrong, right? And then he turns to Jesus, remember me. And he hears this unbelievable promise. Today, this very day, you'll be with me. Paradise. Verse 44. God is making it clear to everyone there that this was no ordinary execution, as if there could even be such a thing. I mean, all that's going on was like, whoa, what is happening here? Verse 44, it was now about noon, right? High noon. 
and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Something miraculous is going on where God brings in complete darkness. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. There's the fourth person. When all the people had gathered to witness the sight, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. This is likely a mix of people who just kind of wandered in to see what's happening today down at the gallows, so to speak, and they're just horrified by what they'd seen. They beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So darkness, why the darkness? Well, darkness in the Bible has always been a sign of God's judgment. So the first place we go back to see this is in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth plague, when God is pouring out his judgments over the Egyptians. And there was darkness over the land of Egypt for three full days. It says it was so dark that people couldn't go anywhere. It's, have you ever been there? I have. Where it's so dark you can't see your hand. It was like that, but it was eerie. Because it went on for what? 72 hours. God's judgment. And there's a sense, in, not a sense, wrong word. The reality is that God's judgment is falling on Christ at the cross. Because as, Peter, as Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Or as Isaiah again would write in chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. He himself, Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that's what's going on in the darkness between noon and three. God's letting us know this is a dark hour. We know the import of it is that all the judgment for anything and everything you and I have ever done will do. Anybody who's ever lived or will ever live, all of it came down. He took on the wrath of God. And it was at that point where he cries out, my God, not in Luke's count, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin always separates us from God. So God has always existed, eternally existed, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, on the cross for the first time, separation. That's the agony. He says, God, plan B, plan B. There's got to be another way, is there? So that's what the darkness is about. But we know that the darkness back in, in the Exodus account wasn't just a sign of, of judgment. So you go back and follow it, and here's how it goes. So the 10th plague, so he doesn't have a change of heart after darkness. No, you can't go. You can't go out and leave Egypt and go worship your God. The 10th plague, the angel of death comes, right? And all the firstborn males of Egypt are killed, and their livestock. Now he has a complete change of heart. Everybody does. Get these Israelites out of here now because they're going to kill us all. So they go out 
And on their way out, remember, they're saying, thank you for your diamonds, thank you for your jewelry. We love your gold and silver too, thank you. They go out with all the treasure, right, of Egypt. By the way, all that stuff becomes part of the tabernacle where they worship God, all decorated with the stuff of Egypt. I love that point. So anyways, they're going out and it's all good until they get up to the Red Sea and find out that Pharaoh had a change of mind again. And he's got his chariots in hot pursuit and now they're in a tough spot. They got the Red Sea on one side and they couldn't get through it. And then, and then on the other side, coming in fast, is Pharaoh's army. And they're going, Moses, what have you done to us? We're going to die right here in the wilderness. And God comes down in the cloud. And he goes, boom, right in the middle. And on the Egyptian side, darkness. On the Israelite side, it was light. And all through the night, as the cloud kept them apart, the winds blew, and God divided something for their deliverance. What was it? The sea. And it says they walked through it on dry ground. So notice darkness, division in the Exodus. Darkness and division in the crucifixion. What's divided? The curtain where? In the temple. And that curtain is very likely the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy of holies, God's very presence. That the high priest went in one time a year. That's how special that place was. They were so freaked out about somebody dying in the presence of God, they tied a rope to the guy and they had bells on his, on his robe so that they didn't hear the bells anymore. They pulled the guy out because they assumed he died unholy in the presence of a holy God. And now the darkness has brought a division that brings a path into not the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but the land of paradise, of a relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this very thing, Hebrews chapter 10. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And so the centurion with the other three says, this man was a righteous man. I think it's in Matthew's account. Surely this man is the son of of God. So there's the burial. And we have a surprise here. We're expecting that one of the disciples might go to Pilate for the body. And indeed it was a disciple, but no one knew he was a disciple because Joseph of Arimathea was actually part of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He actually was there on Thursday night because the text says he cast a descending vote. I, I'm not going to agree that this man ought to die. He was a secret follower, the gospels tell us, because he was afraid to let it be known because he's afraid of what the religious leaders would do to him. But man, he comes out of his secrecy and in boldness approaches Pilate and says, I'd like to take Jesus' body down and bury him in my tomb. And we're told it's a tomb where no one else had been laid. It was freshly hewn out of the rock. And he begins the burial preparations. And Luke tells us that the women, verse 55, saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And so Luke wants us to know he really died. He really died. It, there wasn't like some, he got off the cross. There wasn't some like, oh, you know what? He, he, he just kind of passed out. 
No, he, he really died. He was laid in this tomb Friday, right before sunset, when Passover would begin. That's why it hasn't been finished yet. That's why Joseph and the women would come back to finish the burial process as he wrapped Jesus' body as they customarily did in the linens mixed in with the spices to help with the smell of this decaying body. Typically, there would be several bodies in a tomb, not this tomb. He was the only body. They knew, letting us know, that when they see the empty tomb, they didn't go to the wrong address that Sunday morning. So a secret follower, Joseph of Arimathea, just when we were ready to throw all the religious leaders under the bus, we find out God's grace extends and transforms Men like Joseph, men like me, men like you. So we cover 24 on Easter. If you weren't here, uh, you, you'll be glad that I'm not going to go through all of 24 right now. Um, but the in- interesting thing of how Luke approaches the resurrection account is he's, and remember, he's writing to Theophilus. So we're always thinking of Theo. He, he gives these convincing proofs. So there's the empty tomb that the women find. There's the resurrected body of Christ that the two on the way to Emmaus and then the 10 up in the upper room actually take hold of. And yet in each of those three accounts, the women at the tomb, the two going out of Jerusalem to Emmaus and the 10 disciples in the upper room, there's an added, there's an added evidence that is so important for us today. It was so important to Theophilus. He said, look it, I've carefully investigated. These are the eyewitness accounts. I've placed it all down in an orderly account so that you can be sure that the things you've heard about Jesus, that you can be sure they're true. And it wasn't enough for the disciples then or today to be convinced by eyewitnesses who saw the empty tomb, and there were several, and people who held on to Jesus' resurrected body, and there are hundreds, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, hundreds who saw Jesus walking around after his death. They needed one other point. And for, for Theophilus, Luke knew this is the point that he started his gospel with and that he ends it with, and that is God keeps his word. He kept it to that priest and his wife, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were well beyond bearing age when he said, you're gonna have a son. They had a son. First story in the gospel that Theo needed to hear. And he kept his word to the very end. Why does Luke say, and they divided his garments up by casting lots? Because that was one of the things that Jesus checked off from Psalm 22. All these prophecies. And and so in each of those three situations in 24, Luke records the angel's words and Jesus' words to his disciples that these things had to happen. Why are you surprised? This is what the scripture said. The Messiah is gonna suffer and then he's gonna be raised on the third day. God keeps his word. And that means he keeps his word to you and me today. So what a cast of characters, religious leaders who hate Jesus, Pilate, what a wimp, who becomes his own savior, Herod, who turns Jesus into a circus act looking for a miracle, doesn't take Jesus serious, Barabbas, just a bad dude, given a second chance, 
a centurion who has a complete change of heart and comes to the good confession, a secret follower who actually comes out of the darkness to say, I'm a follower with great courage, Simon, an African, an outsider, who maybe thought, God could never use me to be part of the story. And it turns out he has a huge part of getting Jesus to the place where he needed to be to save the whole world. How good to know that whoever you relate to in this story, Jesus died for you and for me. John 3, 16, we know it, right? For God so loved the world. When I was a kid, the Sunday school teachers would say, just put your name right where it says world. For God loved Mark. He loved you. That he gave his one and only son. I got two sons. Can't even imagine it. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's what happened to the thief on the cross. He understood that he needed a savior. Hey, he says to his friend on the other side, look, we deserve, we're getting what we deserve. We're guilty of a capital crime. This man's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus, acknowledging who he is and what he needs. He turns to him. And you go, well, he didn't say forgive me. Look, he pleads for mercy. Remember me. You don't have to have the right words. Get off of this. These are the words. It's all about the heart. God, I desperately need you. I believe you are the king. You're going into this kingdom. And when you get there, remember me. Whoever believes will not perish, but has eternal life. The danger, it's so familiar. It's so familiar. We're in the story. We're all about the story. That's why he's on the cross. And we're the people that can be freed like Barabbas. But better than Barabbas, promised paradise, life today, forever with him. Let's pray. Father God, there are those listening to me right now who have yet to turn to you. Would you through your spirit let them know that there isn't anything that they've done that would keep you from forgiving and extending mercy and giving them hope for today and forever. Would you grant faith through your word to believe and for all who need your mercy today, would we turn to you and not ourselves, not anyone else. May your mercy transform us to love you more and to live more like you, Jesus. Forgiving those that are impossible to forgive in our life right now and laying down our lives as you did. 
for those you've placed in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.